final sermon series in this church. I know. So we still haven't settled on a date of when I'm actually leaving. I'm still waiting for Stellenbosch to figure that out. But it looks like it might be November, maybe December. So that's where we're looking at just keeping your heads up there and then letting you know that our call committee is meeting for the first time, I think, next Monday evening to start the job of finding Chris 2.0. Um, sounds great, eh? So I remember my very, very first sermon series here. Um, I went through the Sermon on the Mount. And I debated on doing that now as the last one, kind of fitting, you know, beginning and ending. But I changed my mind. And instead what I want to do, and um, I'm kind of, part of me is going, I'm not quite sure why, but um, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians. And of course, 1 Corinthians is all about the church and chaos and disorder. Which is not where this church is at. I don't think this is a chaotic, out of order, messed up church like Corinth, the church at Corinth was. Um, and there are 16 chapters, so we're going to have to hurry. Um, last year, we, so, so yes, that being said, we're, we're moving on from the book of 2 Samuel. Are you sorry to see that one go? No, there's a couple of people are saying, no, that was ugly. Uh, I loved preaching through it, but man, there were some frightening stories in there. Uh, but we'll find some similar ones in Corinthians. Anyway, um, so last year we went through the book of Acts together. And some of you may remember that Paul actually traveled around and arrived at the city of Corinth and started the church in Corinth. He got there after having just been in Athens. And he spent some time in Athens speaking to the intelligentsia of the time. It was as though Paul had arrived in Oxford at Oxford University and debated with Oxford lecturers and, and professors and whatever. Having left Oxford, <laughs> Athens, he, he went from there to Corinth, which is a bit like going to Las Vegas. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that it's like, okay? And, and so it was a notorious city. And we would, well, I don't know if you would, but some people would say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So we have a phrase that encapsulates what Las Vegas is about. Well, back in the ancient world, that is a similar thing for Corinth. They would say, you've gone Corinthian or you've begun to Corinthianize. In other words, you've begun to behave like the people at Corinth, which was basically out of control, completely immoral, indulge whatever you want. That's what it meant to be in Corinth. Corinth's big boast was the temple on the hill. To anyone, anyone know, remember the goddess of? The goddess of love, of course it would be, Aphrodite. Um, and the goddess had 1,000 temple prostitutes serving in the temple where you would participate in worship. That's how you would engage in worship, by visiting the prostitutes. There were other uh, temples in the city, the temple, temple to Bacchus. Who is, the, who is Bacchus? The god of wine, god of wine. yes. And uh, they would go to, the, to, to, to his temple, and their worship at that temple involved getting drunk, which sounds like what people do on a Saturday night. There's lots of temples to Bacchus all around Durban, are there not, on a Saturday night. Um, so you would arrive at the temple of Bacchus and you would drink some wine and you would try and get to that point of not quite comatose drunk but certainly out of your mind enough that you're kind of wobbly and if you got to that point where you were speaking incoherently you were then speaking the language of the gods you'd arrived I don't want to say that some of you know what that means 
because I'm hoping that no one has ever been to that point, but uh, less is the better. It was a city of chaos, and sadly, a lot of that chaos had entered into the church. And so the church were mimicking Bacchus and getting drunk at communion. And it makes you wonder, what was in those tiny little cups? <laughs> well, how many of them did you have to drink to get drunk? My goodness. And, and because of the chaos of, of Aphrodite um, and her temple, there was then all sorts of opinions and, and, and feelings about marriage and love and sex. And, and how does that all work together? And so there were some in the church who were just like, marriage is evil. You should stay single forever. And there were others who were saying, uh, no, no, you can get married, but you can't have carnal relations in marriage. I know. Um, and there were others who were saying, ah, it's just sex, it's just the body. So there's one guy who moves in with his stepmother, which is just a bit odd. Church was a mess. And we're not going to study this passage or this book because I think that you guys are, you know, getting drunk at communion or drinking too much of those little cups. But there are a lot of other things in this book that are really good for all of us. So we are going to get to talk about marriage and sex. We're going to talk about why some people die at communion. How are you feeling at the moment? Anyone feeling a little <laughs> ill? Because people died taking communion, apparently. Um, we're going to get to talk about idols. We're going to take t talk about who is your favorite preacher. And on that week, there will be a poll, and it will not be anonymous. <laughs> There's going to be a talk about a theology of hats. Do we need one? Apparently men wearing hats in church is evil. It's cold, eh? It's fine. Um, and then we're going to talk about, we're going to explore spiritual gifts and talk about tongues and prophecy and who knows whatever else there. So there's, there's a lot of stuff packed into this book. And this morning we're just going to read the first nine verses, which seems like a remarkably small chunk to deal with, and we've got so much to get through. But um, let's begin this morning, First uh, Corinthians chapter one, verse one. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. You know, you can uh, call me Chris. You can call me Pastor Chris. You can call me Pastor Wood. You can call me, call me Reverend Wood, if you like. You can even call me rude names. But don't call me late for supper. 
That was not a very good joke, was it? No. It's the best introduction I could think of, because four times in this passage, Paul talks about called, being called, calling, and that's what we're going to have a look at a little bit this morning, being called, what it is to be called, and what are we called to, and whatever. And the first reference to that here is when you read that Paul called to be an apostle. And some of you remember the story of Paul, I'm sure you do, uh, that Paul was bent on destroying the church. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He um, felt that this, this new sect was an affront to his God, and so the intention was to destroy the church. And he did everything he could to do that. He tossed people in jail. He stood by and approved of them as they were murdered. He tore down their houses. He was on his way to the city of Damascus to continue this, the, the, his, his task, his calling to destroy the church. And on his way, a light appears in the sky. He gets kicked off his horse, and Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus then says to Saul, you're going to have to go into the city, and there you're going to meet a guy, and he'll come and pray with you, and your eyes will be opened, and you will see, and you will be my apostle to the Gentiles, which would have horrified Paul, because he's a good Jew, he's a good Pharisee, and Pharisees in particular do not speak to Gentiles. The great unwashed, you don't do that. Um, and, and so Paul is, goes into the city, and this calling is upon him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Apostle just means one who is sent, one who is sent with a message, perhaps a little bit like an ambassador, one who is going to go and announce the good news that the king is coming. And that's Paul's calling. And that's Paul's calling for the rest of his life, called to be an apostle, to be the one who is sent by God to Gentiles like you and me. And it's because of Paul and his calling that you and I get to get, and unless you're Jewish. Any Jewish people here today? No. Okay, so the Gentiles that are here are here thanks to God's calling of Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, often we'll talk about calling in very religious terms. I have been called to be the pastor of this church. I have for the last 23 years. I have just recently been called to be the pastor of a different church. I've been called to be the pastor at Stellenbosch, and some of you are still angry with me about that. That's okay. We'll deal with it later. Um, but we have the sense of, you know, a very spiritual sense of calling. Greg and Donna have been called to be missionaries. And we have this, we end up with this, this kind of this division, this divide between the sacred and the secular. The sacred people like me and Greg, are called by God to do a special job, and the rest of you plebs just work. <laughs> and we sometimes have that view in our lives, don't we? And there are some industries where it's possible to still think of them being called. So, so perhaps a calling as a nurse, or a calling as a teacher, we still maybe use that language a little bit. And I think you know the difference between the nurse who's just doing the job to get paid, and the nurse who actually feels a sense of calling to care for others, or the teacher who's just getting through, <laughs> Renal, just getting them through, <laughs> Renal's just getting through to retirement, that's all she can see, right? It's just like, ah! Oh. And, and, but the teacher that is called to, to teach kids. But we don't tend to use those words when we think about accountants and plumbers and lawyers and chefs and firemen and 
I don't know, software engineers and so on. But you know, I, I wonder if we begin to, ch- if we're able to change our, our kind of our attitude, the way we think about our job, and begin to consider it more of a calling than just a job, would it change the way we do our jobs? What if you view your job as an electrician or a plumber or a financial manager as a calling instead of a job? What does that look like? What does that mean? Tim Keller says this. He says, a job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it other than you doing it for yourself. So I think a lot of us go to work and we're working for ourselves. I don't mean you're working in your own business, but you're going to the job and you're really going there for an income and a salary and to get the job done. But Tim Keller says, if you, if you go into your job with, um, uh, with somebody else calling you to do it for them rather than for yourselves, it changes your job from just being just a job to vocation. So he says then, our work can be a calling only if our work is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. So again, what he's saying is, if you're going to a job merely for your own interests, it's just a job. And he says this, thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. If you're going to job, going to work, because this is where I gain my identity, I'm an important and significant person because of the job that I do, and if that's the burden that you're placing on yourself, and if that's the reason why you're going to work, you're going to work in order to earn a salary and feel good about yourself, you will be crushed, and the job will destroy you. But if you change the way you think about work, let me read this um, Martin Luther So somebody else talking about Martin Luther. He says, Martin Luther probably did more than any Protestant to establish the theology of work that many Christians embrace today. Like no other theologian before him, he insisted on the dignity and value of all labor. Luther did more to break that split between the sacred and the secular by empowering all believers to know that their work served humanity and enjoyed God's full blessing. All work, every job that you do, we have a, a, a dairy farmer here this morning from Copa. Welcome, Paul. Nice to have you guys with us. Martin Luther said this, that the farmer shoveling manure and the maid milking her cow please God just as much as the minister preaching or praying. And I don't know if we always get that. I know Chris has got the, the, the real job. He's got the most important job, right? He gets to preach. Whoa. And Martin Luther says, no, no. And a Paul, when he's shoveling the cow dung out the barn, do you do that? No. no. <laughs> when, you're, when you're sitting on your little stool milking the do you do No, no, not that either. <laughs> We've got a machine to do that now, I know. But the farmer shoveling manure and the milkmaid milking milk are as significant and as important and as blessed by God as the bishop in his palace with his fancy hat on, dispensing whatever he does. He, he carries on, Luther carries on to say further, as we work in our God-given station in life, we become agents of God's providential care. In other words, as we work at our job, we're doing 
we're allowing God's providence to work in the world. God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Through our hands, God answers the prayers of his children. We pray for daily bread at night. And how do we get that daily bread? How does God provide that daily bread for us? Chris wakes up early in the morning, lights a fire, kneads the dough, cooks the, fire, cooks the bread on the fire because they didn't have electricity this morning. Thank you, Greg. What's your name, Chris? Um, right? The same holds for clothing. God gives the wool, but he doesn't give us the wool without working for it. It's on, if it stays on the sheep, it doesn't make a shirt. Humans must shear and spin and knit and do whatever. Through our work, the naked are clothed, the hungry are fed, the sick are healed. And through our work, we please our maker and love our neighbor. Isn't that cool? Beyond praising farmers, he advised that. I had to put this bit in. He, said, he advised, modern ethics says this, if you see that there is a lack of hangmen, constables, and judges, and you find that you are qualified, you should offer your services. So, if you, you know, there are a lack of hangmen at the moment, and if some of you think that's a job you could do, you know, do this is go. Could you imagine, reimagine your job in a way in which you go, ah, I am participating in God's providential care for the world. And in some ways it's easy. It's easy to see that in milking cows and providing milk for, you know, it's perhaps a little bit diff different as a software engineer. But I remember we did a men's thing on a Monday night, a few years ago now, talking about these things and talking about how to reimagine your job. And Dean at that time was working, fixing machines. That was his job. Dean was fixing machines. Um, it was a dreadful job. He was fixing machines and at all hours of the day and night. And it was terrible. And he fixed machines. He fixed machines in hospitals. And they, they were machines that ran blood tests for AIDS and whatever. And I remember Dean going, <laughs> the lights kind of came on and went, Oh, I'm not just fixing machines. I'm helping people who are sick to know what's wrong with them so that they can get the correct medicine so that God can deal with them. And it was just like this switch of moment of, I'm not just fixing machines anymore. You're providing hope for people in need. You build McDonald's food shops. You're giving people heart attacks and providing work for doctors. <laughs> what? So... <laughs> God's providential care right there. <laughs> this may take some work on your behalf, but to begin to think through and to reimagine what is my true calling, not just what is the job that I do. The second thing that Paul talks about calling here is he says, this letter is written to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and who are called to be holy. They're called to be holy. And that was certainly a big deal for the church of Corinth, because this church was not a holy church at all. Um, they had no idea what real holiness looks like. Now, now here's what's interesting about that little, little verse. that I, uh, if, if you read this in the Greek, which I know you're all very good at, um, what you read here is that it says, um, to the church of God in Corinth, to those hagios in Christ Jesus, who are called to be hagios. And that's not nothing to do with Scottish sheep and things, right? It's not a haggis, it's different. Hagios just means holy. And to be honest, sanctified and saint 
both come from that same word. They, so in, in English, let's forget about the Greek for a moment. In, in English, it literally means, Paul literally saying, to the ones who have been made holy, you are called to be holy. And you go, well, how can it be both? How can it be, be holy and now called to be holy? Surely, if, I'm, if I must try and be holy, then I can't be holy right now. And certainly this church is not holy. You may find it very odd that Paul would say to this church that they are those who are sanctified, those who are holy in Christ Jesus. And in fact, you may even find it more odd that the person sitting next to you, God calls holy. And I know some of you are glancing out the corner of your eye. Um, and yet there is this thing in, in, in the Bible of, of the already and the not yet. Of what God has announced that we are what God has declared us to be and what we will one day become. Sorry, Matt, that door, there's something wrong with the key. Sorry, Ollie. As soon as I said his parents were holy, Ollie was just done. <laughs> You have been made holy and are now called to pursue holiness. Are you holy? I think a lot of us would go, mm, no, not, not really, not particularly. But you have been made holy by Jesus. You have been set apart from your sin by him. You have been set apart for his use by him. And what this means is that the most obscure Christian in the church, think about the most obscure, struggling Christian in our church, that person is as declared as righteous as Paul the Apostle was. Because God has acted on you. That's what makes us holy. Not because we've done something to prove it, but because God has acted on you. God has set you apart for his use. Can I just say we need to celebrate the sound of children in church? In case you're wondering, it is the best sound, okay? And so because he has declared you to be holy, we're called to live holy. And in fact, it's even better than just live holy because the King James Version says it like this. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and are called to be saints. You're a saint. Now, that sounds fine, St. Christopher. I mean, I like the ring of that, right? That sounds great. Sounds, St. Christopher sounds good. Um, St. Tony? Uh, not so sure. Uh, St. John sounds awesome. I mean, that's great, right? St. John, I've got, another, I've got a couple of Johns celebrating that one. Yes. Um, St. Hannah? St. Liz? St. Damon? <laughs> and yet that's what you are and it doesn't mean that I'm going to be praying to you or praying through you it doesn't mean that you have to die before you can get to become a saint it doesn't mean that when you die I'm going to hold on to your finger bone and turn it into a redick thank goodness for that But it does mean that God has called you to live out what he has already made you. He has called you to live out what he's already made you. 
He's called you to holiness and to holy living. And we can only live out that holy and holy living because He has made us holy through His Holy Spirit within. So you're not just called to be a plumber. You're called to be a holy plumber. You're not just called to be a software engineer, but a holy software engineer. You're not just called to be a dentist, but a holy dentist who fixes holes. <laughs> and so it is, St. Sue and St. Debbie and St. I don't know. Called to be an apostle, called to be a saint. And then he says, those who call on him, those who call on Jesus. Let me remind you of what happened when Paul arrived in Corinth. He got into the city and um, went straight to the synagogue, preached in the synagogue. He was there for a few weeks, a couple of months perhaps, and, it, and we're told that the Jews began to oppose him and became abusive. They called Paul rude names and his feelings were hurt. And so he left the synagogue and went next door to the home of Titus and established the church at the home of Titus. He hadn't been there for very long when the leader of the synagogue joined him. Right? So the leader of the synagogue, who's being abusive to Paul, decides, I'm not in the synagogue anymore, I'm going to follow Jesus. And the leader of the synagogue calls on the name of Jesus and goes and joins Paul. So the synagogue appointed a new leader, and that leader gets abusive with Paul, and that leader takes Paul to court. And he drags Paul to court, and they get before the judge, and Gallio the judge says, um, if this is about murder, I'm interested. But because it's about an argument of words, I have no interest in this whatsoever. You're wasting the time of the court. And he has the leader of the synagogue whipped. Which is a, a strange turning of events, because through the book of Acts, we expect Paul to be whipped. That's how the story goes. Paul goes to town, he gets whipped, he leaves. That, that's how it goes. So for the leader of the synagogue to get whipped, it's, things are different. And they go back, he goes to the synagogue, Paul comes back to Titus's house. A year and a half later, Paul leaves Corinth, moves away, writes this letter to the Corinthians, and Paul addresses this letter. Uh, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Which just happens to be the name of the guy that got whipped. Now, I don't know. Okay, I'm reading stuff that's not there. I don't know how many people there were who were called Sosthenes. They may have been thousands of Sosthenes in the town. Um, it sounds like he was baptized at the temple of Bacchus. Sosthenes. Um, but you just have to wonder, don't you? Wouldn't it be fantastic if this Sosthenes is the same Sosthenes that was whipped for opposing Paul and is now called on the name of the Lord and is serving with Paul? Isn't that the, the wonder and the goodness of the gospel? That we call on the name of the Lord and our lives are changed. And at some point, we all have to do that. At some point, we all must call on the name of the Lord. Like Peter walking on the water. Lord, save me. The best prayer anyone can ever pray. Call on the name of the Lord. What do we get when we call on his name? What do we get and what are we calling for? And uh, Paul mentions, well, what, what we get is grace. We get grace. That's what Paul then goes on to talk about. 
He gives us something. He gives us grace, which you all know is getting what we don't deserve. In fact, it's more than just getting what we don't deserve. It's, it's we, the ill-deserving, get something that is just way beyond what we could ever imagine. And Paul kind of highlights three types of grace in this passage. He talks about saving grace. By grace that you have been saved. It is grace and grace alone that saves us. We Again, I think most of us know this, that we're not saved by being good. We're not saved by behaving well. We're not saved by, by being baptized. You weren't saved because your dad was a Sunday school teacher. You're not saved because you took communion this morning. You're not saved because of how much money you did or didn't put in the offering box or EFT to the bank account. You, we are saved purely as an act of His grace. We're not saved because you stood up at a meeting one Sunday or one, some event somewhere and said, you know, said some prayer. You're saved because of His grace and His grace alone. And you know what? Every human being is looking for redemption. Every human being is looking for meaning, for salvation, and for some concept of heaven. We're all looking for salvation and we're all trying to earn it. Here's a song. We won't sing it in church. Here in this darkness that I lay, depression heavy in its way, how my body aches to leave, to sing its final eulogy. My sons, I love you evermore, and though the road beckons once more, I see the damage that I've done in search for redemption. But I'm just a broken man whose soul cries out to understand how the madness shatters me. Upon the stage on bended knee, I scream out loud at skies above that answer mute, bereft in love. I struggle not to fall from grace or sing the hymns of my disgrace. We build cathedrals to our pain, establish monuments to attain freedom from all the scars and the sins, lest we drown in the darkness within. And then he goes on to say, and music will save me. From a band called Machine Head, if anyone's interested. I don't recommend you listen to them. Um, but if we're going to quote the poets of our day, that's it, isn't it? The depression, the sadness, the pain, the sorrow, the, the, the desperate need for redemption, and the no hope that there is. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that there is redemption. There is hope. Redemption is not earned. It's not awarded to the best performer. It's not given to the deserving. It's given to the ill-deserving. And it is Jesus who delivers us from the darkness within, who delivers us from our regrets and the devastation of our past, and who delivers us from our future too, the free grace of salvation. Secondly, Paul talks about enriching grace. How you have been enriched in every way. We'll explore this later on in the series. But he says, you, you've been enriched in every way and do not lack in any spiritual gift. And again, this is where it's helpful to know a little Greek. And if you don't know a little Greek, then to at least know a little bit of the Greek language. I'll just wait for that to sink in. <laughs> the Greek word for grace is charis. Okay? That's the Greek word for grace. And the Greek word for spiritual gifts is one word. Charismata. Spiritual gifts, I think, might be better translated as grace gifts or gifts of grace. So Paul has talked about saving grace and now he talks about enriching grace in which you do not lack any grace gift or any gift of grace. 
And Paul speaks to this crazy, out-of-control church that they've been given uh, all they need in speech and knowledge. That they've been given grace in every gift. They do not lack in any gift of grace. And this is this to a church where Paul is going to have to rein them in later and get them to clean up their act and stop the abuse of the gifts of grace. But he says, you lack nothing. Is that not good for us to know? That God has given us everything we need. And I'm not just talking about the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues and the gift of miracles and whatever else. But he has given us everything we need by grace. God has not only given us grace to save, but he has given us grace sufficient to serve and to serve him. He has given you enriching and even, I would say, empowering grace. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you might, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The enriching, empowering presence of God comes through the, the act of Jesus in sacrificing and surrendering himself. Enriching grace. And then thirdly, Paul talks about preserving grace. That his grace preserves us. I have some preserves in my fridge. Hannah made me a lovely bottle of chutney out of her own jalapenos. And probably those moonshine berries. No, what are they? Moon? No? What are those things? Nightshade. Nightshade. Oh, you're trying to kill me. Those ones. The nightshade berries. Moonshine, nightshade. I, don't, I was something. Um, anyway, and, and it's a lovely bottle in our fridge. It's great. Jason gave me two bottles of, of um, preserved, like, acha vegetable stuff. Ah, it's good stuff, Jason. Um, it really is good stuff. Um, the, the, yeah, yeah, it's lots more, eh? <laughs> if those... Things, if, if, if those bits of vegetables and whatever had not put, been put in preserve, they would have died a slow death in the back of my fridge. <laughs> and they'd probably still be there, the back of my fridge. Um, but the fact that they are preserved means that weeks, even months later, they're still good to eat. Don't you love the words of Paul here? He will keep you strong to the end of the day. To the end of the week. To the end of the... Yeah, to the end of the end. He will keep you strong to the end. What's going to keep you strong to the end? What's going to get you through to the, the very last day when you're on, when you're on your deathbed? What's going to keep you strong from now till then? Will it be your prayers? Will it be the prayers of your pastor? Will it be your visits to gym? He will keep you strong. He will preserve. Sometimes we talk about the perseverance of the saints, and we persevere by His grace. But I, I quite like this idea of being preserved by His grace. That the saints will be soaked in brine and stored in a bottle. <laughs> the reason that we get to the end is not because we hold tightly to him, but because he holds tightly to us. 
right? We know that the reason the five-year-old boy gets across to the other side of the road safely is not because he holds firmly onto daddy's hand, but because daddy holds his hand. And the Corinthians needed to hear this. They had been faithless, they had surrendered their holiness, they had proved to be unworthy, and yet this promise holds true. God would see them through to the end because He is faithful. Not because they were faithful. And Jesus holds you, and some of you feel weak, and some of you wonder if you're going to make it to the end of the day, and yet He will keep you. He will keep you. He will keep you. Persevering saints. And why would he keep you? Because the God who has called us into fellowship with his son is faithful. We're kept to the end because he is faithful. Not because you're faithful. Not because I'm faithful. Because I'm not. If I'm relying on my own faithfulness, I'm in trouble. But I'm relying on his faithfulness. He is faithful. He will not abandon. And in that, did you catch the final call in this passage? That you've been called into fellowship with his son. You've been called, Paul, called to be an apostle. You've been called to be a plumber. We're to call on the name of the Lord. We're called to be holy. And now here we are, called into fellowship with his son. I think some people have this idea that we're saved and that God welcomes us in but kind of keeps us at a little bit of a distance because we're that dirty orphan. That he kind of holds us a little bit at arm's length. That, that God saves us, but maybe it's out of a little bit of a sense of obligation. I mean, he created us. Can't let the whole thing go to waste, so I better rescue some of them. That God saves us, but does he really like us all that much? You know, there's a little bit of a frown on his face every time your name gets mentioned in his presence. He goes, oh. No, he has called you not to a reluctant heaven. He has called you into intimacy with his son. He calls us into fellowship and friendship with Jesus. He calls us into his deep and warm embrace. He has called us into his love. He has called us into himself. He has called you to be a holy software engineer loved by the son. He has called, called you to know Him. And His heart's desire is to know you. To this you've been called. Listen to this from Mr. Packer. Mr. Jim Packer. He says, God's ultimate objective is to bring the saints to a state in which they please Him entirely and love Him adequately. That's what we call to be, that, to love Him and, and, and please Him. And then he says this, people rejoicing in the saving love of God set on them from all eternity. That's what we do. We rejoice in his saving love that has been set upon us from eternity. And, I love this, God rejoicing in the responsive love of people drawn out of them by grace through the gospel. God rejoicing in our responsive love to him. I get that we should rejoice in his love. But that God will rejoice in us? But he does. He rejoices in the responsive love that we bring to him. Surely that's more than we should expect. Surely that's more than we deserve. 
But we've been called into him. We've been welcomed into his heart. We've been called into fellowship with his son. So not only are you called to be a brain surgeon, but you're called to be a holy brain surgeon who will call on the name of the Lord, who had been called into fellowship, into intimacy, into union with the Son of God. And ladies and gentlemen, that call is open to us here today. God calls you into fellowship. And in fact, we participated in that this morning. In eating and drinking this morning, this simple meal, the table that has been laid before us, in doing that, there was a participation and a fellowship in Him. Will you respond to His call today and enter into fellowship with the Son? Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Father, we want to thank you this morning that you have called us your children, that you have called us to be holy, that you call us to call on you, and that you have called us and drawn us into the embrace of your Son, Jesus Christ. That we've been drawn into fellowship with him. Lord, may we respond. May we respond with hearts filled with love and rejoice in the love of God that has been set upon us. And, oh Lord, would you rejoice in us. Amen.